Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. You hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. -day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, summertime and the reading is all about humor in this special August edition of Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. If there ever was a time we could all use a good laugh, it's now, as all around us the world seems to be on fire, literally and figuratively. For this special one-hour edition, we're delving into the world of humor on the written page, through the musings of contemporary humor essayists, those sharp and witty observers of everyday life who find the funny in the mundane. Here's Sloane Crossley, Jim Gaffigan, and Allie Wentworth. Kim was my invisible friend, except that she wasn't. I never spoke to her, never talked about her to anyone. All I did was name her and decide she was there. I forgot her at home or at school. If she had been a Tamagotchi, her little electronic soul would have died of neglect. I'm like the Ray Lewis or Terry Bradshaw of eating. I'm like the Tony Saragusa of eating. Well, that's a little redundant. When a thin person announces, here's a great taco place, I kind of shut down a little. How do they know it's so great? From smelling the tacos? Cooper. He was soaked slimy and had that fetid stink, which could only mean he had rolled in dead fish. Someday I'd like to meet a scientist or biological behaviorist who could explain two things about the animal kingdom that I just can't fathom. One, how a boa constrictor can swallow a deer whole. And two, why my dog feels a need to baste himself in anything dead, rotting, or defecated. These comic chroniclers use their own lived experiences as a lens to deconstruct the serious in service of the silly. Writing for the journal Assay, Andy Harper notes, self-deprecating humor invites the reader to truth, pain, and a good laugh. Listen as humor essayists Phoebe Robinson, David Sedaris, and Nora Ephron use laughter as a tool to offer commentary that goes way beyond jokes. Black hair seems to raise a lot of non-black people's blood pressure. I've seen the gamut of emotion on people's faces. Awe, confusion, stress, anger, joy, amazement, suspicion, envy, attraction. You name it, because we, and I'm using the royal we here, as in society, have never figured out how to have a healthy, functional relationship with black hair. I was in Paris, waiting to undergo what promised to be a pretty disgusting medical procedure when I got word that my father was dying. The hospital I was in had opened in 2000, but it seemed newer. From our vantage point in the second floor radiology department, Hugh and I could see the cafes situated side by side in the modern, sun-filled concourse below. It's like an airline terminal, he observed. Yes, I said, terminal illness. Even if you vow to be eternally joyful about being on the planet Earth and promise never to complain about anything ever again, I promise you that one day, soon, sooner than you can imagine, you will look in the mirror and think, I hate this scar. 
Humor writing is more popular than ever. Sales bumped up during the height of COVID, and post-emergency COVID readers are still drawn to stories that are both heartfelt and hilarious. And is there anything better than chuckling out loud while reading? Joining me, two authors whose books of humor essays have drawn both critical acclaim and fan loyalty. Samantha Irby is the author of five books, including her latest book of essays, Quietly Hostile, a New York Times bestseller. She is a writer and producer on the Sex and the City reboot, the Max HBO streaming series, and Just Like That, and a blogger whose provocatively titled Substack column is about food. She's been nominated for Goodreads Choice Awards Best Humor and Audio Award for Humor. Welcome, Samantha. Hello. Hello. Blythe Robertson is the author of two books of humorous essays, her latest, America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road, Most Traveled. The former researcher for The Stephen Colbert Show has written for The New Yorker, Esquire, Kinfolk, Vice Magazine, and for the NPR show, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Hello, Blythe. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have both of you. Um, and I want to uh, start by just uh, getting a read on both of your books, so to speak. So, Samantha, I'll start with you. Quietly Hostile. Um, why the title? Well, um, I don't get to choose the titles uh, the way it worked because I would just call my books like terrible, terrible things. Uh, so they stopped me from doing that. Uh, so I, after I turn everything in, my editor goes through and tries to find phrases that both encapsulate me and make good titles and quietly hostile, which is like deep simmering Midwestern uh, irritation, not really rage, but irritation masked by uh, polite friendliness is really my vibe. So <laughs> quietly hostile is me. <laughs> uh, and I will note that the cover art is a very agitated skunk. Yes. <laughs> Who seems to yes. be quietly hostile as well. <laughs> yes. So Blythe, you have this lovely bucolic setting on your cover with a question mark after America the Beautiful. Um, so um, you came to that because, of course, your book is about traveling across America. So give us a little bit of uh, what you were going for as you uh, began to put this book together. Yeah. Uh, so I was a big fan of Bill Bryson's comedy uh, travelogues when I was growing up and I was like what a great scam this guy ran he just went on vacation and got paid to write jokes about it so I kind of was like what if I could do that um, but you know also was like but I'm a woman and why are there so few like female versions of this kind of story so that was where I started. Um, I am interested uh, to hear from you if you Think of yourselves as comedians, because I'll note that the Internet, OK, we know about the Internet, describes you both as comedians, <laughs> whereas I might have thought of you as writers, um, nonfiction humor. So, Samantha, do you see yourself as a comedian? And if so, why and how does that work with the writing? Well, I'm going to say no, because the connotation of the word comedian, like, it like makes your butt itch, right? You're like, Ugh. 
comedian. I don't want to talk to that comedian. And also, like, I don't do stand up. And I think people like immediately are like, you know, can I go see you at Zany's? Um, (laughs) So I I would say writer who's funny rather than comedian. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I feel like there hasn't been a humorist since like Mark Twain days. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All righty. So I'm taking that from you, Blythe. You don't see yourself as a comedian either. No, I, I do. I think I used to perform a lot pre COVID and found such joy in, yeah, just doing uh, comedy on stage. Although I would always like almost puke before because it was so <laughs> nerve wracking. <laughs> Yeah, there is a reason I can't or I don't do stand up and it's well one I'm better like in long form but also like stand up audiences are like the only audience that's encouraged to heckle you Mm. during your performance and I can't hats off to you Blythe I cannot do it but I'm glad that you do and that you love it. When people would heckle me, it almost always would be because I like said something factually incorrect. Like I had, I did a lot of PowerPoints and I had a photo of um, green onions and I called them leeks because I could the different people (laughs) screamed. Like there was a revolt. It was like rites of spring. (laughs) Oh, I get that now. All right. Well, um, I love both your books. Uh, If I haven't made that clear, I I love both of them. I like to uh, tell my listeners right away that I, I love the books so they know to expect wonderfulness from them um and i each of your takes on everything in your lives are what makes uh, the story so compelling now you have a through line of blythe because you're traveling across the country but what struck me right off the top is as you announced uh to your family that you were going to take this trip people just freaked out on a different level you've already mentioned there are all these men that have you know, done this cross country travel, no problem. But but the thought of you as a woman traveling freaked them out. I'd love you to read um, from the book just what people were freaked out about as you sure. did. Okay, perfect. Um, <laughs> so this is a little excerpt um, where I told everyone, I, I'm like, okay, I'm going to go on a trip. And everyone was like, you're going to get murdered. Um, And they told me about all, and if they didn't tell me I was going to get murdered, they'd be like, let me tell you a thing that you can buy to not get murdered. So this is from that. Um, One major category of the don't get murdered industrial complex is location tracking devices. Almost everyone I told about my trip recommended some sort of location tracker to me. Letting everyone in the world track me like a Domino's pizza would, of course, not prevent me from getting murdered. At best, it would let them figure out that I had been murdered as quickly as possible. Then there were the products that would prevent me from getting murdered, or at least make murdering me slightly more inconvenient. When I described my trip to two women over drinks, one told me about a website called Damsel in Defense, from which her mother had bought her a pastel-hued stun gun. I pulled up the website. For $70, you could buy a stun gun that, photographed in soft lighting and nestled on a couch next to an array of throw pillows, looked exactly like a sex toy. You could buy rape whistles, or as the website called them, her emergency necklaces. They also sold a striking tool with a baby blue body and a sleek silver tip. I turned my phone screen to the women to show them. Sorry, I said, I'm not supposed to put this in my butt. 
constant predictions of one's impending violent death are not only an emotional strain that men don't have to deal with before going on the road. They're a financial strain as well. Men aren't told they're going to be murdered on their solo trips, so they don't have to spend $70 on a stun gun. They don't stock up on mace. They bring things to protect them from the wilderness, a knife or a canister of bear spray, which is a kind of pepper spray used to deter bears and not, critically, something that you apply to your body like bug spray. But they don't buy things to protect them from other men. I don't have a single male friend who owns a stun gun or a rape whistle or whose family suggested that they get those things before setting off on solo trips. Certainly, I don't have any with stepdads who, like my stepdad did to me, offered to get them a gun. I decided that I wouldn't spend any money on any of those things men wouldn't have to spend money on. Bear spray would be enough to keep me safe. Ultimately, I did forget to pack bear spray. I knew that I would not get murdered on my trip. It was obvious to me. At the same time, it's hard to overstate how at peace I was with the idea that I could die on this trip. I could get in a car crash, I could fall off the side of a cliff, a deer could kill me, or I could get murdered, sure. It took a lot of time to grow comfortable with the idea that my trip would be planned only a few days at a time in advance. After that, accepting my own mortality was easy. Everyone has to die sometime. If a deer feels the need to kill me, we should respect the wishes of the deer. Some people assumed that I would be riding the rails or hitchhiking across America, both of which admittedly are more dangerous than going on a long drive. I wasn't doing either of those things. That I had access to a car I could borrow and money to pay for gas was a privilege. I wasn't going to make things harder on myself just to try to seem more legit. I long ago came to terms with the fact that I am not legit. I didn't want to perform authenticity like that type of man who feels so weird about his trust fund that he hitchhikes into the wilderness to die. I don't have a trust fund, but if I did, I would simply use it to buy a GeoTracker, the coolest car in the world. <laughs> but it wasn't like the world was really so dangerous. The murder rate in the United States was falling, at least before COVID made us throw the social contract out the window. It was just that the murder shows my mom and dad and friends would quote to me while explaining exactly how I would get dismembered made it seem like we were in more danger than ever before. We, meaning a very specific slice of the population. As my friend Madeline put it to me once, when all my other friends were convinced I would be murdered going on an out-of-town, hiking-centric first date, Madeline said, the true crime industrial complex wants white women to fear everything. Being a woman entails certain risks, but I had learned ways to look out for myself, and I couldn't see why those risks would be greater on a mountain in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by no one, than they are in my normal life in the middle of Brooklyn, surrounded by drunk men of all ages who stand in front of my apartment talking all day and talking loudly all night. Our culture is just as invested in the idea that cities are dangerous for women on their own as it is in the idea that the road is dangerous for women on their own. If I had beat the odds on one for so long, could the other really be as dire as society made it out to be? That's my guest, Blythe Robertson. She's reading from her latest book, America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road, Most Travel. There's so much in there, uh, Blythe, uh, yeah. you know, about women being on the road, about our whole thing, about how, 
our fear about women being out there alone doing anything. I mean, in this instance, I think it was just, you were on the road, but mm-hmm. you could just easily have applied it to other situations, I think. Um, and I thought you captured it beautifully. And of course, you know, with that um, tongue in cheek humor that we like to see on the page. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right. Now over to you, Samantha. I have to say, I mean, I love so much of uh, everything in both of your books. But one of my favorites from you, Samantha, is responding to the people who question why you like something. You know, I literally (laughs) sat up and said, yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So I want you to read about it. And this the setup is that you're you're talking about how you like certain things. And then all of a sudden other people have to weigh in on it and say they don't like it. And that's supposed to make you feel bad. Here you go. I get embarrassed for being a person with basic tastes who does not interrogate things very deeply. A person who needs to be smacked in the face with the subliminal message because I absolutely will not suss it out for myself. Can someone explain parasite to me, please? The embarrassment usually leads to my second guessing both myself and my interpretation of whatever it is we're talking about. Oh, so what you're trying to say is that I'm not supposed to think Mission Impossible Fallout is intellectually stimulating and the greatest film of all time? This then devolves into an even more embarrassing apology. I'm so sorry for not understanding what, quote, good acting is. And that continues until I shrivel into a husk and die, vowing with my dying breaths to never again publicly express joy or excitement. Some friend of my wife said to me, who am I, a balding stand-up comic in 1987? After using the dry cleaner recommendation she'd asked me for a week earlier, that strip mall where you told me to go get my pants hemmed is so depressing. I can't believe you go there. I leaned against my open front door in a fraying hoodie and soiled pajama bottoms, blinking at her over my first Diet Coke of the day. What did she want from me? What was I supposed to say? I can't believe you go there, she repeated, and it became clear to me that she wanted an explanation an apology. Unfortunately, I was in no mood to be forced to atone for a place that I did not conceptualize, did not build, do not own, do not live in, do not profit from, frequently use with satisfaction, told her about as a courtesy because she asked me. Wanting to keep this early morning interaction as brief as possible, my brain cycled through the possibilities of how to respond. I could apologize for uh, helping her and solving her problem, apologize for having poor taste in local shopping plazas, apologize for being alive, apologize then snarkily asked how her dry cleaning turned out, and then immediately and reflexively apologized for being snarky. Imagine me saying, 
I'm sorry that the home of Bill's greeting card hut and Lucy's luxury lashes wasn't up to your exacting standards. And I apologize for making you look at dull brown bricks. I would rather live inside the value city that's next door to Glamour Nails. But I didn't say anything, and she chuckled again, saying, it's so ugly, followed by an anticipative pause. And I don't know, man, the smoothie spot is pretty good, and the out-of-business DVD store is oddly comforting to me. So I arranged my face into something resembling cheerfulness and said, in my highest octave, I like it. Gotcha. I watched as she searched for something to say next since I dodged the trap she'd set and whatever further insult she had prepared to hit me with. I like it, I chirped again. I like it. I like it a lot. I don't remember if I slammed the door in her face or kicked her backward down my concrete steps, but what I do know is that day a new person was born an upgraded version of myself that no longer felt shamed by some smarty pants making fun of the John Grisham novel poking out of my backpack. <laughs> I love it. That's my guest, Samantha Irby, reading from her latest book, Quietly Hostile. Um, and that's what I'll be saying from now on. I like it. <laughs> yes. You just take their knees out right from under them. Exactly. Um, for those of us who could never um, think of being able to write in the way that you two do, you know, with that just that that funny piece to it, looking at the same things I see but uh, couldn't respond in the same way, where does it come from? I mean, I know I'm asking where does creativity come from, and that's a particular uh, to each person. But Samantha, where where do you think yours comes from? Um, I am a uh, deeply uncomfortable person um, who is always nervous <laughs> and stressed out. But I think like, I just have to do something with that nervousness and like uncertainty. And luckily for me, my brain is just very good at seeing a situation or experiencing a thing and like squeezing the one funny thing out of it. Okay. What about you, Blythe? Uh, I feel like all credit has to go to my family who are all so I'm like the least funny person in my family. <laughs> I always thought my family was so funny. And we had all these like in jokes that we would quote to each other. And then I recently rewatched the movie My Cousin Vinny as an adult. And I was like, everything my family says is just a line <laughs> from My Cousin Vinny. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, what's your writing process? How does it begin? Um, does do you have to tweak? I mean, yes, of course, when you're a good writer, you have to tweak and rewrite and all of that. But I mean, in terms of getting to the to a place where it can be universally understood as humorous, Blythe, uh, what do you have to do to to get to that point? Yeah, I mean, I think like I do a lot of sitting in front of my word document screaming and crying trying to think of anything funny to say about anything um and you know I this is mortifying to admit on public radio but I have spent 
millions of dollars to study improv in mm. Chicago and New York. So that is helpful. But, um, you know, I use all of the things I've ever learned about how to write jokes. And then I end up having like three jokes that make me laugh. And my editor's like, these are not funny. You can't put these in the book. And I'm like, they have to go in the book because they're funny to me. Um, yeah. And then that's my process. Eventually my editor and I reach a detente about what things are actually funny. And how do you, you know, just to follow up on that, you know, that's the whole thing, because what's funny to one person may not be to the other. And and um, so I guess you just have to release that. You have to figure out, as you've said, this is funny to me. Um, I think, you know, it'll have a resonance uh, to many people. And I'm not just going to worry about whether everybody thinks it's funny. Is that the deal? Exactly. I feel mm -hmm. like all at the end of the day, I can only please myself and possibly my editor and like I think there I know that there are enough other people who find what I find funny also funny that it'll be okay that's interesting well I, I was going to ask you the same question Samantha like how do you uh, or do you even worry about striking uh, notes of humor that uh, will universally resonate not at all mm -hmm. ever um <laughs> I'm, I'm going to sound like a real piece of garbage, but I just write what makes me laugh. And then I'm so fragile uh, emotionally. <laughs> My <laughs> ego is so fragile. I never let anyone read anything while I'm working on it. I oh. just like, yeah, no, I do mm. not want feedback unless it's from the woman who's paying me to write mm -hmm. it <laughs> and so a long time ago I stopped trying to anticipate what people might want and just wrote what I wanted to write mm -hmm. and make myself laugh and that is still that's how I do it and once I turn it in it's too late <laughs> Wait, Sam, I have a question for you because I do the yeah. same thing where I'm like, no one can read this. This is between me and my editor and like Satan. And then <laughs> it makes it worse when the book comes out because I'm like, no one else has read this and it might actually be horrible. Do you experience that where you're like, oh, no. Or are you just like, I know that I'm incredible. No, I absolutely am like, it, you know, because the bubble feels good while you're in it when it's just like you and your editor, like sending emails back and forth. But usually like my first bracing jolt of, uh-oh, more people are going to read this is when the fact checkers and copy mm. editors get to it. I mean, writing comedy, you have to be like deeply mentally ill. I'm speaking yeah. for myself, Blythe. I don't want to. No, I'm also deeply, <laughs> deeply mentally ill. <laughs> Well, they also they always say that comedy is on the other side of pain. So would yes. you all agree with that? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's a way to get out of pain, yeah. too, when you're ready. Yeah. When, it when doesn't I, have to be funny immediately, but eventually it'll be funny. Yeah. Whenever literally anything bad happens to me, my mom is always like, oh, well, you can write about this. And I'm like, mom, <laughs> I would rather just not have everyone break up with me. Feeling <laughs> be leaking. But yeah, I guess I could write about this. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, this is our special edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. My guests are Samantha Irby, whose latest book of humor essays is Quietly Hostile, and Blythe Robertson, whose latest book of humor essays is America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road Most Traveled. Um, so, Blythe, back over to you. We should make it clear that as you were traveling, you had an organizing 
principle around your travel. You just didn't go here, there, and everywhere. You were going to certain national parks, but you were going to get your junior badge. Why don't you explain that? Yeah. (laughs) So there's this thing called a junior ranger badge that you can get at all national parks. And most sites run by the National Park Service, so like national monuments. Um, And a lot of state parks have a version of this too. And basically, it's just like you get a little booklet designed for children and it has crosswords and word searches and bingo and stuff to teach you about that park and if you presumably a child fill out this notebook you can return it to a ranger and they give you a little plastic pin um and i love them technically you're allowed to get them even if you are old like me (laughs) Um, and some park rangers find it cute when adults get it Um, most don't really but yeah I wanted them I crave them (laughs) like uh, they're so exciting to me so I went to national parks that I did not already have a junior ranger badge from and got my little badges Um, I thought that was hilarious Uh, but at the same time you actually learned more probably than people just traveling on their own going through because there was so much information um, it's true. In those uh, in the booklets that you had to fill out to get the badge. But um, talk about how obsessive you were about getting the badge <laughs> because oh my gosh. it wasn't just maybe I'll get it. This is a good organizing principle. My goodness, Blythe, you made sure you got that badge at the end. Yeah, there came a time. So in the beginning of my trip, I was like, this is so great. My life is spreading out before me. I can spend however long I want in any park. So like get my little notebook, leisurely walk around. But by the time I was in California, I started in Wisconsin. So I had driven halfway around the country at this point. I was in California. For some reason, it seemed so important to me that I had to be in L.A. for a meeting on like a Tuesday. So I was speeding through parks. I get to Yosemite with like an hour and a half before the visitor center close. I get my junior ranger badge. I like hide in the parking lot and fill it out in the car without even looking at a squirrel because I was like, I need to get this. And then I was like, okay, I can either go back inside this building where I just got this booklet and admit to them that I am like a 28 year old woman who is not even like going on hikes. I'm just getting these badges for the sake of getting the badges. And I was like, I have a little bit more dignity than that. So I decided to drive an hour to the next closest visitor center to turn it in there to act like I was a woman who cared about actual mountains. I wanted to pick up from there because there you are traveling around however you organized your trip, very much solo. And it's it's, it's so shocking to me because Holiday Inn is my idea of, of camping. I mean, I just could never do anything like that. And you know what I mean? Both of you express so much um, uh, anxiety about yourselves or worry about, you know, how you are perceived in the world. But on the page, as you des- describe your what's happening in your lives in a funny way, you're so confident. I just get a sense of very strong women vibes, uh, Samantha, when I read your piece, even though you're saying on the page, I'm feeling, oh, God, oh, God, oh, God. Um, are you aware of that dichotomy? Yes, I think uh, I I kind of mask. I mean, it's easy to sort of mask your insecurities a little bit with, you know, all caps and lots of uh, cuss words <laughs> and stuff. But in real life, I am 
truly like a panda, right? Like I am just rolling around, being nice, uh, hoping people are nice to me. I think, I mean, there's a freedom in, you know, I don't, I couldn't be a public speaker, right? I couldn't go around like giving the speeches and being cool, but behind the, behind a computer screen, I do feel, I mean, you just sort of get to let go and forget about your flaws and uh, or write about those flaws in a funny way and it's very freeing but I do understand like you know if someone meets me and I and realizes that I'm constantly apologizing or I'm like flop sweating because I'm so (laughs) nervous and they're like oh you really are a mess and I'm like yes thank you for seeing it um (laughs) But yeah, I do understand that like, it's probably, it's probably shocking, but it's easier than you think, than you would think to like spill your guts on the page. You know what I mean? Like for me, it doesn't, everyone's like, you're brave. And I'm like, no, it's so easy just to sit there and do that. It's much harder to make a good impression or be who Mm -hmm. I want to be in actual life. Mm -hmm. Well, coming up, more with our humor essayist, Samantha Irby and Blythe Robertson. We're back with my guest, Samantha Irby, whose book is Quietly Hostile, and Blythe Robertson, whose book is America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road Most Traveled. Both are humor essayists, and we're talking about how it is that they are able to excavate from their own lives some very funny stories uh, and put them on the page. All right, so... Uh, when we last, uh, when we were just talking, you said it's easier to put it on the page than it seems. Um, I want to hear more from uh, both of you from the book, little excerpts, because I find it uh, just so fascinating about how you're able to um, uh, construct from what seems to be just regular stuff going on, uh, something that would, you know, get my attention. So for you, uh, Blythe, you were writing about... Uh, as you went along, how crowded these scenes were in some of these national parks. Um, And it seemed to me to be also to get across that a lot of people were just sort of there, not really paying attention. They they made the trip. They could say they made the trip, but they, you know, you wonder if they're really into it. I wonder if you'd uh, read from page 103. It's hard to convey just how many people there were at Zion National Park, except by saying that it was during my first hike there that I invented the wedgie test, a metric I have used countless times since. The test works like this. First, I get a wedgie. Second, I look around to see if there is another person either walking toward me or walking behind me. If there is, then I am unable to pick my wedgie, and the trail has thus failed the wedgie test. What does not require any follow-up questions is why I was so frequently getting wedgies. At no point during my time in Zion did any trail pass the wedgie test for even one moment. 
I was in some of the most breathtaking nature in the country, and I was never alone in it. This does not mean the park wasn't beautiful. The canyons flipped my brain upside down, prickly pear cactus bloomed, the Virgin River flowed through the valley, a mule deer, undeterred by the heavy foot traffic, chomped leaves beside the trail. I picked up any trash I saw, an activity I found gross, but did because it was a requirement for my coveted Junior Ranger badge. After hiking multiple trails to different waterfalls, I made my way to a ranger program, another requirement. This talk, the shortest one that best fit my schedule, would be on bighorn sheep. Sure, why not? The entire audience was young children trying to get their badges and those children's parents. The bighorn sheep fans, aka the bighorn sheeple, aka the hornies, were apparently not in town. As we sat waiting for the program to begin, the ranger, a young woman named Haley, told us about working at the park. A lot of visitors tell us they feel like it's Disneyland in terms of crowding, she said. In the past five years, Zion had become overrun to an extent that was endangering the plants, the animals, and petroglyphs. And according to Ranger Haley, this exponential increase in visitors was due entirely to social media. By then, it was time for the program to begin, and Ranger Haley told us all about bighorn sheep. Both the males and the females can have horns, it turns out. Feminism has gone too far. When I got back to the visitor center, it was the end of the day, and there was mercifully no line. As I approached the desks, uh, two male rangers finished helping people at the same time, and both gestured for me to approach. You have to pick one of us, said the ranger on the left, flirtily. Which one of you is better? I responded. I am good at flirting. I'm taller, said the one on the right. It's true, the other ranger conceded. He is taller. The one on the right stood up, towering over everyone and everything. I had no choice. It's science. I walked to the tall ranger and told him, unable to make it into a flirt despite my great powers, <laughs> that I had completed my children's booklet and was here to claim my baby badge. I just love that story. <laughs> uh, so many in the book that I love. Um, over to you, Samantha. What I think is interesting, and you all have uh, talked about it a bit here, is that your urge to make something funny is overwhelming, <laughs> no matter what the situation is. And so here you are in your book um, having an extreme allergic reaction, which could be very, very serious, as in life and death. You're rushed to the hospital, and you just <laughs> can't resist. So I'd love you to read from page 206. A nurse behind my head was reaching over me to affix a bunch of heart-monitoring electrodes to my chest. On my left side was a doctor in black scrubs, fancy, who was trying to look in my eyes with a pen light and a doctor in green scrubs with a clipboard who kept repeating, what did you take? What did you take? What did you take? While I tried to choke out the word Zyrtec in a way he could understand around my enormous tongue. Black scrubs instructed me to, quote, scooch my butt down and open my mouth as wide as possible. And I tried to make a joke like, that's me breathing because uh, my airway was constricted. So please uh, enjoy these donkey noises. Sure, but you got to take me to dinner first. And Black Scrubs looked at me with such kind pity that it broke my heart. 
He very solemnly said, Samantha, you are funny, but you are also in anaphylactic shock. I am trying to clear your airway. Please stop joking and tilt your head back. That was not my first time being booed off stage, but it was certainly the most jarring, especially since he didn't even give me a chance to workshop the one about how my throat was tighter than new leather shoes, so he should use his meat tube to intubate me. Clear my airway. Anaphylactic shock. Those are death sentences. I think the most upsetting realization I had that night was that when faced with imminent doom, these could be the last few snorting breaths you ever take kind of doom, I naturally defaulted to joking. I will die, eventually, being a clown. A clown who is desperate to coax even a hint of a smile from the very serious people tasked with making sure she lives to honk her big red nose another day. <laughs> that one just got me. I was like, I cannot believe this woman's about to die. And she's. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was so embarrassing. Um, do you all think that your, not just your books, but the genre that you write in, the, the humor essays, the nonfiction humor, is more popular now? Uh, yeah. Everybody and their grandmother has like a, a <laughs> funny essay book. <laughs> uh, listen, if if other people keep writing them, that means we get to keep writing them. So exactly, I'm, I'm not going to read them because I am intimidated by other people's work um, and the fear that they might be better than. <laughs> but good for them. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the books are being written, if they're being read, you know, the no way of knowing, like I couldn't be bothered to Google. <laughs> and for psychological reasons, I can't know whether or not anyone else has read my books. But yeah, it's nice to see. Um, I'm wondering, has uh, since you've been working in this general um, arena, has your writing changed? So for example, um, Blythe, has your writing changed since you wrote your first book, How to Date Men? when you hate men that was the title. oh yeah <laughs> yeah definitely. yeah when I wrote how to date men when you hate men I had this should be illegal but I had never written anything longer than 12 pages double spaced um even though I do have like a college degree um so my chapters were all like three pages long and that was kind of a book of essays I guess like really micro essays but when I wrote America the Beautiful I was like oh my gosh this is a story about me driving around the country and it all it's a one narrative that takes place in chronological order so I feel like I did truly have to learn how to write a whole new kind of book at the end of writing the book having gone fully crazy during the process I was very proud of myself for figuring it out yeah because you had to t turn toward uh, linear linearity, if I can make up a word, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, with the second book, um, as opposed to being able to sort of um, come in and out as you did on, you know, how to date men when you hate men um, in a kind of not stream of consciousness, but you know what I mean, as it, you can just kind of flow as in the moment. 
Uh, Samantha, what about you? Have, have you noted any changes in how you write since you started doing your book of essays? I know you do other kinds of writing as well, but and maybe th that's helped you change. I don't know. Well, I think uh, I am a smidge more mature. Um, so I think, I mean, I think my writing's gotten better just, you know, from being alive and reading. And then just my, I mean, I think it has just sort of grown up with me. I just am writing about different things now. I don't know. I look at my writing as like, the kind of thing where I'm like you know we're all swimming in diarrhea and I look over at you and I'm like this sucks right like that's how I feel my my like my book vibe or whatever is is like that so I I don't want it to change too much I certainly don't want it to get more professional <laughs> but it is older you can tell I'm getting older at a time that we're living in now, um, which is tough all around, it just, it feels like there's no relief from all of the stuff that's happening in the world, locally, nationally, internationally. Um, how important is it to be able to find humor in the everyday, would you all say? For me, it's the most important thing. I think like the the drive because I'm not like a, a motivated <laughs> active person <laughs> I have to have some other engine like fueling my day it's not like oh I'm gonna tackle corporate America um, <laughs> so it's like I need to have funny things like and it could be like memes or you know Blythe knows I love a meme oh yeah um <laughs> <laughs> just a, a podcast anything I just have to have funny things happening around me all the time and I think it's crucially important at least for my survival to continue to find the funny and things that otherwise like you know make you want to die yeah I mean we're alive one time might as well have a good time <laughs> I read uh the uninhabitable earth that david wallace wells book and cried on the phone to my lover for literally a week and he was like you know you can just not read this book and i was like that's the coward's route but actually i do think he's right it's better to try to laugh a little if you're just tuning in this is our special one-hour edition of under the radar with callie crossley for bookmarked the under the radar book club my guests are humor essayist samantha irby author of Quietly Hostile, and Blythe Robertson, author of America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road Most Traveled. Do you all think that there is any, um, now I know you, you've expressed very clearly, you try not to read other people's stuff, um, characteristic of female humorous people. I know you don't think of yourselves as a humorous in the old way, but, but for... Uh, writers of of humor essays who are women do you think your take is a little different in any way or is that just I'm just no that doesn't work I think <laughs> I think if I were writing like like opinion pieces I, I might be able to like distinguish myself but I think mm. at least 
and I, I read lots of things, just not other essay, not a lot of other essay collections, although I did read and love Blythe's book. Um, <laughs> but I think because like, well, at least for me, because I'm just writing about me and the stuff I do. I mean, it's different because I'm the one doing it and it comes from my weird perspective but I don't think I mean I think we're all like kind of doing the same thing I don't know if that's insult or what I'm gonna let Blythe save me with something smarter (laughs) than what I just said (laughs) no I think I agree like when I wrote how to date men I was kind of like oh this is like a feminist take on dating but as I get older and tireder I'm more just kind of like I don't have any original thoughts that are going to break the world open I really just have uh my day-to-day life and here's you know my own stories but uh to be insufferable I would love to quote the Turkish novelist Orhan Pamuk who said uh the formula for originality is very simple you just take two things that have never been together before and put them together and I feel like (laughs) me plus any situation is original so that's my view Oh, that's so good. I'm stealing that. <laughs> <laughs> I'll probably say it at a book at a party too. Anyway, <laughs> I, I will give credit. <laughs> I won't. I'll be like, I made that up. Um, uh, last year, uh, Vulture was listing its, uh, according to whomever put their list together, best humor books, but made, uh, I thought, an interesting statement while doing so, saying that, um, comedy was going through an evolution didn't really explain what that meant and I wondered if you agreed and if so what's the evolution I I was gonna say first of all they did not uh put any of my books on that list so So it's not evolved (laughs) yeah it hasn't evolved yet it hasn't evolved to actually funny books no I'm just kidding just kidding to all the nominees or whatever um I I don't know I feel like I don't know if it's evolved as much as like there are little niches and lanes like you can very easily find someone who does the thing you like and like there are lots of different like sub genres and people are finding their people which I think is cool Mm -hmm. but I don't know about evolution I mean, I moved to New York City 10 years ago, brag, uh, and at that time, I feel like we were in the middle of this, like, comedy boom where everyone wanted to be a comedian. Everyone was taking improv classes. We were all going to UCB and watching. um, What's UCB? Oh, uh, Upright (laughs) Citizens Brigade was this, like, yeah, it was Amy Poehler and her, like sketch team started it and we would just all be in the sweaty basement under a grocery store and watch all of these like uh mostly guys do improv and it was just the pulsing beat of my life I'm look at my time in improv as very important informative to me but also like was I in a cult maybe um so I don't know that that is really answering your question but I feel like the like self-seriousness and like where all the coolest people in the world of comedy has kind of changed at least in in my circles 
well it's weird because we still have like prestige comics you know the people who like get a million dollars and fill you know huge venues but then there are also like you know people in dank basements doing comedy and then there are people like us which again I don't know if we qualify but mm-hmm. um I'm gonna I'm gonna say that we we do and I, I don't know if that's evolution or if like it's just the same old thing with different shoes on mm-hmm. you know yeah. mm. what do you want people to take away from your book either of you can start I'll start. I'll I'll call you out, Blythe. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's so weird because, like, when I think I really just wrote this book to make people laugh. Like, I didn't write it hoping like I would change, you know, the hearts and minds of America. <laughs> um, so I hope they just enjoy it, really. But I also, I mean, people when I went on this trip. People were like, oh, are you going to go find yourself? And I was like, I already have found myself. I'm a 28-year-old woman. I'm a full adult. And I would give you a compliment and say that because of the way that you wrote the book, it's very enticing, not necessarily to get take a long trip, but you really want to go see some of these sites if you haven't. Um, it really draws you to think about the beauty that's there and wow, you know, it, it was, it, it served its purpose in that way. So, because a lot of people have not traveled to any of these sites, to any national park. So just to know that that's a part of our culture, really. Um, and the way that you described it, I think was very effective. So, I'll, so there you have it. <laughs> now, Samantha, for you, what do you want people to take away? Uh, I hope that people laugh. I mean, that's my primary, um, goal but well actually that's like my secondary goal my primary goal is for people to fall desperately in <laughs> love with me and tell me all you know how much they love me and how they want to cuddle me and all that like I am a deep well of need uh <laughs> And really, no, for real, it's like I'm trying to make a hundred friends or whatever. Not yeah. really, but like, you know, kind of. I do, um, no, I do want people to like think that I'm cool. I feel like you're not supposed to say that, um, but, <laughs> but no, I so want pe- I'm desperate for people to love me yeah Dude, when I wrote my first book I was like okay great women think I'm cool and I wrote this book being like what if even one man could read this book and think that I'm cool? <laughs> yes yeah. I, think I think you're both doing okay um one last question is there any has there been a particular response to your work that you thought was interesting you might have heard from someone who read the book or one of your regular fans Anything that um, oh. struck you? Yes, go yeah. ahead, Life. Mm-hmm. So my first book is called How to Date Men When You Hate Men. So a couple times a month, I get an email from someone telling me that I'm going to be going to hell when I die. Um, <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> yeah. And so this book, I had gotten a couple emails like that about my first book. And then I got an email from a reader of my second book who was like, I'm 84 years old and your book reminded me of some trips I had gone on. And here's some stories from my life. And 
I'm looking forward to going to this place with my wife this summer. And thank you for writing your book. And I was just so touched. And, you know, that man never would have read my first book. And it made me really happy that he emailed me. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so nice. I know. <laughs> Samantha, how about you? I uh, make it nearly impossible <laughs> for people to con contact me. <laughs> I'm uh, so terrified of seeing something horrible that I have walled myself off pretty well. But I will say there's a thing I do with my local bookstore where if someone orders a book from there and they they put a note like I want Sam to write this or whatever, I'll do that and then it'll get mailed to them. And a few people, probably people who have searched for an email uh, and haven't found one to connect with me have like a lot of people have put little notes in their requests about how much my work means to them and Aww. how long they've been reading it and that is so nice so it's not a surprise I mean it's a the ingenuity is a surprise right that they figured out how to uh slit me a little note <laughs> when I don't want any but it is nice I mean it truly is nice to hear that anyone is impacted positively negatively as long as they've read it but even if they don't read it if they just buy it that's good enough. <laughs> I would say <laughs> well I know that my listeners will enjoy both books and um, I'm delighted to talk to both of you uh, and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, it thank was you. A pleasure. Thank you. Samantha Irby is the author of five books, including her latest book of essays, Quietly Hostile, a New York Times bestseller. Blythe Robertson is the author of two books of humorous essays. Her latest, America the Beautiful, One Woman in a Borrowed Prius on the Road Most Traveled. Both of their books are available online and in bookstores. That's it for this special edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Listen to us online at GBH News or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook to stay up to date with our programming. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Jesse Steinmetz and engineered by Dave Goodman. Our intern is Miriam Hydara. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. Listen again on Thursday and see you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday for a new episode. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening. Oh